I guess I really messed that one up, didn't I? I just couldn't wait to hear the choir was what it amounted to. It gave me chills up and down my spine. And, and it was good. I mean, it was good chills. <laughs> well, you have to explain. Sometimes you have crawling flesh, you know. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that. I think actually the reason I messed the, the order of things up there was that consciously I didn't want to start right after the special music. I'm just used to not used to being in that sermonette slot. I guess I didn't know what to do. <coughs> One thing I intended to mention and forgot was that some have already turned their offering in, just turned it in instead of at a, at a, a take-up sort of thing. And uh, that might have been embarrassing if you'd already given your offering, you're sitting there and you just sort of pass the hat. <laughs> so I, I want the rest of you to know that those who didn't give either are in a really terrible attitude <laughs> or they've already given. <laughs> Does that ease it? <laughs> Services tomorrow are at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. There is now a schedule back on the back table uh, that you can check. But I did that on purpose. I thought during the middle of the feast it would be nice to, to have a morning you could just sleep in and relax and do other things uh, instead of being here at the same time every morning. Um, we tried that in Africa the last two or three years, and it seemed to help to, to break the routine a little bit and to give people a chance if they needed to to rest up um, and may help cut down on colds and sicknesses and so on. That, that we, it seems like every year toward the end of the feast the attendance starts sliding because people have colds and this and that and uh, maybe this will help give you a chance to rest up in the morning and uh, that was the whole reason for doing it. So 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, the morning service. Um, some have asked about maybe having a cookout Wednesday evening. Um, so I think we'll go ahead and plan that for those who would like. And if the weather permits, we'll just have it right out here. Um, someone has volunteered to run in and get hamburger meat and buns and so on. And uh, Marla had quite a bit of salad and things left over and chips and juice from the meal the first night. So maybe we can finish up some of those things and just have hamburgers. We'll, we'll barbecue them over. There's a barbecue over at our motel since there's not one here. We can just barbecue the meat there and bring it over here. So let's see, Wednesday, I don't know, 5? Oh, that's right. We have, the, we have a business meeting at 2 Wednesday afternoon. So uh, that would be a good thing. If we plan dinner at 5, we'll shut up and, 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 uh, and get the meal ready. So maybe maybe we won't go that long, but if we get to talking about things, sometimes uh, it, it can go. So that would be a good way to cap that. I'd forgotten that. That's good. Now, for those who want to go to the Grand Canyon today, uh, there are two ways of getting there. Some <laughs> some of you flatland furriners have uh, have expressed dismay at, at, at curves in the road. <laughs> Switchbacks, we call them. 
uh, you can, if you want, sneak down to Hurricane, and then there's a road there. I guess, let's see, I think it's up on top of the hill before you go down into Hurricane. There's a road that goes back around through Colorado City and on over to Fredonia and then down to the North Rim. On my map, that road on down to the North Rim is Highway 67, and it's in light gray, like it's not a major highway, uh, so you might have to look carefully. But it is a good road all the way. It's paved and pretty much straight all the way down. So if you want to miss these curves here on the east side of Zion, you can go down through Hurricane. But I think I'll go through Zion because it's shorter there and it's prettier. But uh, if some feel that way and want to go the other way, that's fine because you all wind up down there at the North Rim, same spot anyway. I, I will warn you, though, if you go around through Hurricane and up through Colorado City and Fredonia, Colorado City is a polygamous town. So you might want to hang on to your wives and daughters pretty carefully as you go through there. They get they get three, four, five, six wives and they're always looking for one more, you know. And they'll take them as early as 13, 14, 15 too. Or you might just ignore the situation and <laughs> They'll take all comers. Okay, let's see. Is there anything else to announce? Uh, well, just on that Grand Canyon thing, I'm going to come up here with. We've got a black suburban with a little red stripe at the bottom. Uh, we thought we'd. I don't know. Will the gate still be open at one, Terry, or will you have it closed and be gone? Well, we could just meet here for those who want to sort of convoy down, or if you want to just go the other way or take off on your own, that's fine too. But uh, I've been down, so follow me and don't tell me where you'll wind up. But but I wanted to try to leave about one personally because it's it's probably a two-and-a-half-hour drive down there and uh, to have time to see the canyon and maybe get back before dark, it'd be better to get going. So... We may want to run home and change clothes and grab a bite to eat and, or carry it with us and go. Okay, I think that's all I have in the way of announcements, so we'll get into the sermon and see if we can come out on the other side of it on time. As you know, we started into the government thing, and uh, I had not really intended a series on this when I came to the feast, but I did look up a lot of scriptures, and I wanted to hit that thing of self-government first because that is the key to government is, is self-control and governing ourselves properly. And then we sort of short-circuited yesterday onto the gifts of the Spirit, but that even ties in very well because uh, we have to ask for those gifts and we have to use them for the sake of each other and we have to control ourselves in order to ever be given that kind of gift and so on. But what I wanted to do today is get on into some of the New Testament scriptures that have to do with the administration of the churches in the early New Testament church. Uh, there's an awful lot in here, and I have noticed over the last few years the people who want a government uh, hammer away at a few verses, and those who don't like government at all and don't want a ministry hammer away at other verses. And uh, what's the whole picture? What should we gain out of this? How should things work? So... This is not organized in a fashion of, you know, so many categories for, for hierarchy and so many categories for no preachers. 
you know, and, and that type of an organization. I just went through the Bible and picked out uh, everything I saw that had to do with the administration of the early New Testament church. And actually, this is just a list of scriptures, and it got quite long. So I don't know how long we'll stick with this and how long we'll go to something be before we go to something else. But I think we need to look at these scriptures and see what God has to say about various things. So here's one that is contrasting right off the bat. Uh, let's see, be sure I get started here at the, at the first. Yeah, Romans 10 uh, and verse 14. Because we talked about self-government, and yet here, in a sense, is a contrast to that. Verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things, quoting Isaiah there. So, we do need preachers, don't we? We need people who have read and studied something out, who are willing to stand up and, and point it out to us, just as they were doing in Nehemiah. They didn't just read the law, but they gave the sense. They gave the um, interpretation of it so that we might understand exactly what was being talked about. And we need these sermonettes we've been getting uh, in this, the sermon from Nelson Nichols. We need different viewpoints. We need uh, people who've organized scriptures here a little, there a little, to bring it to us, to maybe spring some thoughts in our minds we haven't had. How many of us would be in the greater church of God today or right here today had it not been for Herbert Armstrong, a preacher sent by God, to reveal the truth to us? We'd still be going along like the rest of this world without a clue, except God had sent a preacher. So government is first and foremost self-government, but there also has to be some organization and a way for us to impart information one to another. So God set up a ministry, just like he set up the Old Testament Levites, to perform a service to God's people. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans. you got the Greeks, the Jews, he says. How would we know about God except we had somebody to speak to us about it? So we can establish right offhand that there really should be a ministry, in spite of the view of some people today. Does that contradict with the scriptures? See, they'll ignore this one, some people, and then they'll say, well, it says study to show yourself approved. And the Bereans study the scriptures daily and uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or quote Ezekiel 34, where it says there is no preacher, or there is no shepherd, excuse me. Well, it's not a contradiction. It's that we need to do both. We need to be studying our Bibles ourselves and working out our salvation, and yet at the same time, we need those who can remind us, can show us, can help give us deeper understanding of certain areas. And you might study something and get just as deep an understanding yourself, but maybe you'll take it from a different angle or whatever. So we do need to have iron sharpen iron, and it isn't a contradiction. It's simply a matter of doing both and then doing both properly. I don't see a contradiction there at all. Unless you're trying to grind an axe and you want to completely ignore these scriptures and this is your favorite set over here. But that's what the Protestants do. I always found I could derail them very rapidly because they would come 
and they would have about ten scriptures they knew. And they were right in order. And then if I take them to a different part of the Bible, suddenly they were lost. We can't do that. We have to live by every word of God. All right, Romans 13.1. Well, we covered this yesterday. Let every subject be, or, or every soul be subject to the higher powers. So I'm not going to spend time on that one. Let's move on. Uh, Romans 16. Here in verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Concerned about their own stomach and their own paycheck and their own physical goods, and we've had an awful lot of that abuse. But notice, Paul is writing to the Roman church and tells them to mark them that cause division. It appears to be somewhat of a con congregational function, doesn't it? As opposed to just the preacher kicking people out. Now, Paul gives the instruction, and there are other instructions that we'll run across before we're done here, but he addresses this to you brethren. It isn't entirely up to the ministry to see who might be causing division and, and trouble, but if you see someone who is rending and hurting your fellow sheep, you have a responsibility. That doesn't mean that uh, one member can start kicking another member out. I don't, I don't mean that, you know. The church would be pretty small. It would be down to one pretty quickly. Uh, we'd have 100 churches of one <laughs> overnight, <laughs> I guess, if every time we got upset with another member we, uh, we kicked each other out. I don't think that Paul is saying that, but if there come in ministers or there come in uh, people who obviously are not of the same stripe, we should react as a body. We should know. We had a situation like that in CGG a few years ago where a, a man came in who was an elder uh, somewhere. I don't know who. I, I think I do know who it ordained him. It doesn't really matter. I won't say, and I won't say who it was, but... He came in, and he had his whole agenda that was totally different from what everyone else there was doing. And boy, did you talk about people shying away in a hurry. And it didn't take long until he was gone, because uh, not only did he speak things that were not right to our ears and, and was advertising all his own literature there and so on and so forth, but then he started talking to the members. And it wasn't long before a real hullabaloo arose, and... Uh, he was out of there and gone. So um, we have to use this scripture, I think, <clears throat> in the light of other scriptures to know exactly how to do it. But what I'm saying is anytime a herdsman, a shepherd, sees the flock running over to the other side of the field, he grabs his shotgun and runs out there to see what's going on because they don't normally do that unless something's chasing them uh, or... Something is wrong. So if I see you suddenly climbing the walls out of here, uh, I'll know that there's something haywire and, and something needs to be done. <clears throat> something needs to be checked out. So Paul was saying, be careful. Don't let someone sneak in there who is going to tear you away from what you believe and what you know and uh, disrupt and harm the flock. 
Let's move on here. First uh, Corinthians two. And verse four. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. <clears throat> Paul saying that he had a certain authority here that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are mature, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world to our glory. So Paul did have, at least in his own mind, he certainly had the authority, he certainly had the permission of God to speak with power and authority. Some would not wish that today, but it's clearly in here. Chapter 3, verse 3, For you are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and division, are you not carnal and walk as men? So he felt that he, as the shepherd or the pastor, certainly had uh, power and authority to call a spade a spade, or carnal, carnal, uh, or sin, sin. He didn't have to have, take a vote from the congregation as to whether or not he should tell them they were sinners or not. <laughs> you see, there, there was a certain power and authority that Christ had given that Paul used at times. Now let's go on to 1 Corinthians 5. They say there is not authority in the ministry what did Paul do here? Well, we all know this story. I'm not going to rehearse the whole thing. I don't think we need to. But here was this man who was in an, apparently an incestuous relationship. And the people around in the congregation, remember this is Corinth. It, it wouldn't happen probably in uh, Pierre, South Dakota, because you have conservative peoples there. But here you had a people who were a very immoral type of people. Maybe it would happen in San Francisco, where you could have a congregation of people, and you could have someone there committing incest, and they'd think, well, this is normal. <laughs> What's unusual about this? We did this in the Temple of Diana all the time. Well, that was in Ephesus, but, you know, the pagan temples. And somehow they had just sort of let it slide and, and were kind of, you know, oh, that's funny. I wonder if I could get away with that type of a thing. Well, Paul judged that from outside. And he said, put that man out from among you. Don't allow him in the congregation. And he spoke with great power there and great authority. And that's probably the strongest Paul ever got. Uh, in the New Testament was right here in 1 Corinthians 5 when there was a terrible sin in the church. And he said at one point that the fornication should not even be mentioned or exist at all among the people of God. So he had authority there and power to use when it was absolutely necessary to use. Had these people been following proper government and governing themselves, he wouldn't have had to do this, see? But it's when terrible sin entered and it was not being handled that he had to come down on them. And you know, a little later on, he had to come down on them almost as hard to get them to take the guy back after he repented. 
Those were two of the hardest times he ever came down on the congregation, is make this sinner leave, and then, after they'd done that, they wrote him off and trashed him, and then he said, that man's repented, you better let him back, and you better love him. Our reactions aren't always right, so we need someone there to help us see that God forgives when there is true repentance. But we, we like to pigeonhole people. He's a sinner or he's not a sinner. And if he's been a sinner, he's still a sinner. So there was great power there to be used, but carefully. And I would say sparingly, because this didn't happen too often. Aren't very many examples in the New Testament of this kind of power and this kind of direction being used. We just happen to run across them early on here. <laughs> so don't think I'm going to suddenly start saying that uh, uh, we're going to start kicking people out left and right, and that's what some organizations are doing right now. You don't agree on some technicality or some little doctrine or some teaching that they have that's particular to their own, you're out of here. Uh, some of you have experienced some of those things. But this was a terrible moral sin against the commandments of God. I don't think I'll include this section. There's, uh, I, I wrote down several scriptures here about us being the temple of God and how our bodies are the spiritual house. Uh, we're all pretty well familiar with that, that God is building a work within us, and I think I covered it in principle by saying that we're self-governing because that, that temple you're building is your temple, and you've got to govern that whole temple very uh, assiduously, carefully, to be sure that everything that's done in that temple that God has given you, your body, your mind, is according to his plan and his purpose. Remember what happened when Aaron's sons brought a strange fire and put it on the altar? We can say, well, that was thousands of years ago, and those guys should not have done that. <laughs> but do you bring strange thoughts and strange fire, strange actions into your temple that you are building before God that is his temple? If that temple is defiled and not used properly, then God says he will defile, I mean, he will destroy a defiled temple. So it brings it right home to us. Each and every one of us is individuals. But we have to be very careful what we bring into that temple of God. And then, of course, he uses the other analogy of the house of God or the temple of God, including the whole congregation. And we need to be very, very careful what we bring into the congregation as well, because it, too, is a type of the temple of God. So we have to guard ourselves in both cases. But if each and every one of us guards his own personal temple properly, there will be a minimum of problems in the bigger temple that we have to deal with. And if you, you see, you have to deal stringently and strictly with yourself. Then, if each one does that, the ministry does not have to deal stringently and strictly with the whole congregation. They weren't doing that in Corinth. is the reason Paul had to do it for the sake of all lest the whole temple be defiled by one who is defiling his own temple. But the thing can all work together right if everyone does his part. That's what it amounts to. Um, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. 
Wherefore I beseech you, be you followers of me. There's another place where he says, be a follower of me as I follow Christ. That's the one I probably should be reading because that is the, the footnote to this one, is only as he follows Christ. Now, anytime the ministry says, you have to do it because I said so, if it does not conform to Scripture, you don't have to do it. Follow me only as I follow Christ. And if you find that the church is not doing what Scripture says, then you are not required to follow that. But the Catholic approach was that the Pope is infallible and the priests are infallible. They may be in jail with AIDS for child molestation, but they're infallible, (laughs) more or less. We are not obligated to follow wrong government or wrong instruction. You just don't have to do it. I think we may have all learned that by now. I hope we have. (laughs) But the Word of God is the final authority on any and everything. John 10.35, the Scripture cannot be broken. So it doesn't make any difference whether it's calendar or uh, Holy Day offerings or whatever it is. If it doesn't follow Scripture, we need to fix it. That's the final authority. No human apostle is, but the chief apostle is the final authority. And he wrote this word and said, live by every word written here. That's the final government. Now, verses 20 and 21 of this same chapter Verse 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will you? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? So see, he had an option here of of how he could come to them. If they followed his instruction in terms of this man of fornication that he's about to address, uh, he would come to them in meekness and love and kindness and gentleness, but if they ignored his instruction, he would come in power. So Paul had that option. He wanted to come with a spirit of meekness and gentleness. And that's why he wrote this ahead of time, before he ever even addressed the problem. Chapter 6, verse 5. He's talking about judgments, about the saints judging the world here, and was deploring the fact that brother was going to brother against law and lawsuits were being filed against each other in the church. And he said, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, verse 7, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? You might be right in a matter, but should you take your brother to court over it? Why not just go ahead and and back off and turn the other cheek? Be defrauded. That's kind of hard instruction, isn't it? We don't like to be mistreated or misused or treated unfairly. But was Christ mistreated, abused, or treated unfairly? (laughs) Boy, they did everything to that man they could do and then killed him. 
he was willing to take it. Nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that's your brother's. Uh, what was I looking for here? Oh, verse 5, I speak to your shame, it is so. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. There is a principle of government that we should be able to find among ourselves someone who has enough wisdom and enough judgment and enough love that if two people have an argument about something, they should be able to go to that person and say, you know, we're, we're at loggerheads here. We're having difficulty getting this settled. Would you help us? See, this is government on uh, not the lowest level, that is you governing yourself, but then it's getting some help when two of us can't get along. doesn't say necessarily the ministry. He says, is there any man among you there who could judge a matter instead of going to court? Someone who would judge by the laws of God? That gives you an impetus to study, doesn't it? And to think more like God does and to come to know his mind because someone might come to you and say, we're having trouble here. Would you please straighten this out for us? And you say, duh. You know, then politics can get in there. We, we, we hate the politicians, don't we? And how they lie and avoid and so on. But what if you're put in a position where two of your brothers, whom you both love, and you've got to live with these guys for the next 10, 20, 30 years, come to you and say, help solve this problem. You think, well, if I do it this way, I'm going to have problems with him. And if I go this way, I'm going to have problems with him. And suddenly you're a politician, aren't you? If you're not very careful. See how those politicians get in that position? Maybe you just haven't walked a mile in their moccasins yet. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to make judgments. Solomon had incredible wisdom when he says, well, bring me a sword. Let's just cut this little rascal in half. They wouldn't have done it. Well, I don't think. They did do things differently back then than they do now. <laughs> I don't think he would have. But boy, he sure ferreted out the real mother in a hurry. What an incredible stroke of wisdom. What if somebody had come to you with that exact same problem? Would you have come up with that solution? I doubt if any of us would have. But to him, it was suddenly logical. I, I can find out who it is here. I mean, he was thinking far beyond what the immediate problem was to the ultimate solution. Ought to have that kind of wisdom. Well, we're here at the Feast of Tabernacles, and what we're discussing here today is us being kings and priests and rulers in the world tomorrow with problems like that being brought before us. And that's why I decided to go ahead and talk about this more. Not only do we need to learn to how God would have us govern ourselves as a congregation, but we also need to know how to govern those people then. This feast is about them, but we're not yet preaching to them, and we're not yet ready for lambs and lions to lie down together because their natures haven't been changed. And unfortunately, our natures haven't been changed enough, and we don't have the kind of wisdom and knowledge and the necessities to rule them in a proper way. So what this could be then, in a sense that way, is school for us to get ourselves ready to understand how God intends government to work so that we can be there and have the wisdom and understanding and knowledge when difficult situations come before us. Some of you think, well, I'm, you know, I'm old or whatever, and, and I'm not going to be used in the government now, so what does this have to do with me? 
Well, you're not always going to be old. Did you know that? You're going to be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye, and, and uh, your husband is going to tell you, I want you to go over there and take care of so-and-so. They're having a fight down in Egypt. You go figure it out. Or something of that nature. And you're not going to be able to say, well, I'm too old to go down there. Or I'm not smart enough to go down there. Or I don't know enough scriptures. Or I don't have any experience governing or whatever lame excuse you might come up with, he's going to say, you go straighten that mess in Egypt out. Ooh. Are you ready? <laughs> I don't think I am. It's all we can do to just barely keep ourselves in one group in this day and age. We barely have enough peacekeeping ability to keep little groups of 3, 5, 10, 15, 20 people together as congregations. The situation in the church has been sad, and obviously we don't have enough of the love of God. We don't have enough of the mind of God. We don't have enough obedience to his laws so that we're all working together closely and in harmony. And we just keep splitting and splitting and splitting because of Laodiceanism and sin and all various kinds of things that are afflicting us today. So we have a lot to learn. But that's the object of going through this, is so that we might learn to govern ourselves properly, both as individuals and as a group, so that then we can be kings and priests who have the wisdom of Solomon plus. Because the problem between those two ladies was not near as big a problem as we're going to face when this world has been shaken and baked and so many people killed and then those who are left crying out for help and wondering, what do I do? What do I eat? Where do I go? What's next? Is there another wave of violence coming and I'm going to be killed also? And they're not going to know. They won't know who Jesus Christ is. Most everybody on this earth is going to turn and fight him when he comes. So they're not going to have a clue. And it's up to us then to be ready to go out and rehabilitate straighten out the entire earth as kings and priests under Jesus Christ. Fortunately, he knows all the answers. But he's given us, you don't realize he's given us all the answers right here? All the answers are in this book. Everything you need to govern yourself, to govern a congregation or govern a world, is in this book. but we're missing some things. Either in our understanding of the book or in applying it in our lives. That's why he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling and study daily whether these things are so. First Corinthians 7 Verse 17, he's talking about divorce and remarriage basically in this chapter. But he says, but as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord has called everyone, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all the churches. Showing here that there are different administrations, as we read yesterday in 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul had the administrative authority to ordain that a certain practice be in all the churches of God or all the congregations better translated. 
So he made a decision here that affected all the congregations. Differences in operations and differences in administrations are there, but he had authority over all of them, as well, at least to the Gentile churches, and I assume that this would have probably been to the Israelite churches as well. As an apostle, he had to check with James and Peter and, and each other to be sure that they were on the same page, and on circumcision they weren't. So they had to get together and discern what was God's approach to this, because God had revealed it to Peter uh, in, the, in the vision and let him know what all this was about, that the Gentiles were to come in, but they had to get together and, and get it straightened out as to what, what is it God really wants here. Somewhat similar to the situation with the calendar today. We, we could see that it was being done wrong this way, but then we have to, to get together and, and determine what is the best, most righteous solution to this problem that can be found. And then once we've determined the best we can, we go with that, unless and until we learn something better. But then we have to make a decision for the whole congregation so that we can all agree to do it so that we're not on two, three, four different days, it's better if we can come to a consensus on what is the best approach to this. Like with circumcision, it, was, it came down to, well, do we get out the knives or do we don't? You see, they had to come to a decision. And you know what? They didn't all agree. They really didn't all agree. You think about that body of men there in Acts 15. And most of them had been raised as Jews. And they called Gentiles dogs. And they were all circumcised, and the Jews and the Gentiles were not circumcised. And if you had put that to a vote, do we circumcise? They'd have all raised their hand and said, yes, we have to all be circumcised. And we get to cut on the Gentiles too. <laughs> that would have been their attitude if they accepted them at all. But that was their emotion. That was their feeling going into that meeting. And Peter presented his case. Paul presented his case. And since they were both the main speakers there in terms of what God had showed them, James is the one that came up with a decision. And everyone there said, okay, we see that as a decision coming from God, we'll do it. But they'd, they'd, re they'd gotten the testimony together, they'd heard the pro and con, and then James simply made a decision. Well, did they split and divide over that? No. They all accepted that decision as being the best and most righteous solution to the problem of bringing the Gentiles into the church is that they would not circumcise. Now, that went against the grain of all the Jews. But they accepted it because it came through, came from God via a dream to Peter, and Peter brought it on in, and it also had come to Paul. We don't necessarily all have to totally agree on everything to be able to work together. And it took those men, I'm sure, quite some time to get emotionally in line with that which was a decision that they was ordained in all the churches. So, at some point on some things, 
decisions simply have to be made. And that's where we need to be willing to uh, submit one to another is when a decision is made. When there, in, in this case, there was a clear-cut answer that God had given through the apostles. But in some cases, it may not be as clear-cut. And we need to be willing to give a little bit in order to make something work while we work it out. And if the answer is not completely right yet, then we'll keep working on it until we get it right. I'm talking about a very difficult situation where you say, well, I don't agree. Music is one of those. Some people think we ought to sing just these songs. Some think we ought to sing just these songs. Some think people think we should sing these plus three of those. And somebody will say, no, I think four of those are okay. You see how easy it can get balled up and people say, well, they're singing a song I didn't like. I'm out of here. Well, if there's one that just particularly really torques you, uh, don't sing. That's okay. And then sing twice as loud on the next one which you approve of. But we're not all going to totally agree on music, I'll guarantee you. Ever. Probably until we're singing in the hallelujah chorus of God's choir. <laughs> then we'll know exactly from him what he approves and what he doesn't approve. But Mr. Armstrong went back and forth on music a lot. He'd, he'd take out a bunch of Protestant songs, and they'd leave, well, we'll leave these three in, or these six, or whatever. And then they'd revise the book. Well, I don't like that one anymore. And uh, back and forth it would go. And when it came to the uh, Ambassador Corral, we had, we had songs that we could sing that were approved, and then others uh, you just left alone. And you had to be careful to be sure that it was done in the proper way and it was the right selection, or Mr. Armstrong would be sitting on the front row and he'd be going to say, and, and this sort of disturbed your concentration. You didn't follow your part always. And then it got worse. <laughs> so there are issues that are very emotional issues. And we have to be careful that we use heads instead of just emotions. If they had gone by emotion, they'd have had a riot there in Acts 15 before that meeting was over. So things need to be done decently and in order, and God has set administrators, administrative offices there to do those things. They just have to be done correctly. Uh, let's see. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. I, didn't, I skipped over this, but here it says, God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, and after that, miracles and gifts of healings, helps, uh, governments, administrations, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Um, I think it's Ephesians 4. I might turn back there and compare that right now. Ephesians 4, 11, because they say, somewhat the same thing. Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. They break it down into more ranks, but 1 Corinthians 12 shows an order, apostles, prophets, teachers, and then they break the teachers down apparently into different categories, including evangelists and pastors that weren't in the other list. Uh, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So he gave the offices, and he gives the reason those offices were given. Now, some people would like to say today that, well, there, there should be no hierarchy, but 
he does mention these things first, doesn't he? And it was clear through all the scriptures, if you'll read the New Testament, that the apostles were in charge. And Paul had as an apostle the authority to ordain in all churches, as he said there in 1 Corinthians 7, a certain uh, way of handling the divorce and remarriage situation. So God has set those things there. And notice that the offices are set first with being able basically to teach people God's way. That's, that's the, what the first offices basically are there for. After that come miracles and healings and so on. Those aren't as important. They're important offices. They're important functions. And if you're sick, you know that. They're very, very important. But teaching us the way of God is far more important by comparison because we wouldn't even know what to do to be healed unless we had the correct teaching from the Word of God, you see. So God did set those there, and I think that, they, that he intended a hierarchy. Paul instructed Titus, he instructed Timothy, on how to run their particular churches and the pastoral uh, books that we'll get to in a little bit. So he had the capacity, in a hierarchical fashion, to do this. It's just that there are many, many scriptures which modify how it is to be done. Second Corinthians uh, 1. 2 Corinthians 1. And here I want uh, verse 24. Not for that we had dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith you stand. By your faith you stand. So Paul, even though he had been very strong in 1 Corinthians 5 about the, the uh, fornicator in their midst, he said, here, I'm not here to have dominion over your faith. But we're here to be helpers of your joy. So he could use authority and power when he absolutely had to, but his main function was to be helpers of your joy. What is your joy? Your joy is entering the kingdom of God and living forever without pain, uh, without argument, without frustration, uh, to live as the Father and the Son live. That is our ultimate joy. It's what we're shooting for. That's why we're here, is to learn more about that so we can be there. And that is my function, is to help you toward fulfilling that joy. Now, that was read. I, was it Takachas or somebody back in under Mr. Armstrong that started using this scripture to be helpers of your joy? I think it was even before. I think it was before Takachas. I think it was way back. I just garbled. It's too, been, it's too much back there. Uh, but uh, that was brought out at the same time. The ministry was still being very abusive. So it was understood in principle that we're here to help you and to strengthen you, to encourage you. And at the same time, they'd read that, you know, on one side of the mouth and, and you were getting it in the neck from the other side. But it's in here. Let's see, chapter 2, verse 7. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him. Now here's where he's telling them that they had better forgive this fellow and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you'll be obedient in all things. So Paul said, I have determined that this man has repented. 
And I want you to reach out to him in love, lest he be overcome with much sorrow and give up, quit, lose out on the kingdom of God. You know, we're not willing to do that. Garner Ted Armstrong said in 1967 or 8 in Jekyll Island that he and his father were the two witnesses. And his father's dead, and some people still think he's going to be resurrected and fulfill that job. Well, what if Ted's the other one? There are a lot of people with an awful lot of attitudes about that man. I'm not suggesting it. <laughs> I don't think that's the way God probably is going to work it. But we have a history there. that A lot of people are very violently opposed to him now as a result of. Now, what if he did just truly from the bottom of his heart really repent and change his life around and God put him in a position over all of us? Are you ready for that? Could you forgive? Now, some of you would say yes. And some in the greater church of God would say absolutely not. That man has sinned. He's not fit to rule over us. What about Joshua in Zechariah 3? He said he was filthy. God is going to take one who has been filthy and set over us. Maybe as filthy as Ted or worse, who knows? I don't know who, how bad this man's going to have been. But God is going to do that to us. For us, excuse me, for us. <laughs> Be careful of what you say and how you say it. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to take Paul's instructions here and say, that man repented, I'm going to love him, whoever it turns out to be. Now, in the church of God today, you've got people writing books about the sins of Herbert Armstrong. I don't know if any books come out about the sins of Garner Ted yet or not, but they get repeated regardless. And there are all kinds of attitudes toward both Mr. Armstrong and his son, and toward the other ministers, and so on and so forth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What if God took somebody like David? Not only did he take the other man's wife, then he killed a guy, and he lied, and he did all kinds of stuff. What if God set someone like David over you? Guess what? He's going to. He's going to rule all Israel. I, we probably don't have attitudes about David, do we? I mean, it's been a long time ago, and there's been a lot of uh, water under the bridge since then. So we don't have attitudes about David anymore, and we figure, well, he's a righteous king, and God can use him, and that'll be hunky-dory with me. But what if it's more close and more personal than somebody from your generation who has sinned? Are you ready for that? What if you got an epistle like this from a minister in the church that said, I'm sending a minister here, and you say, oh, no, that man, you, you, should, you should hear what he did 20 years ago. Sounds kind of dumb, doesn't it? You think that's bad. What did he did 40 years ago? It gets down to the nitty-gritty of whether we really live like God. He says he will remove our sins as far as the east is from the west, and they will no longer be mentioned 
ever again to us. Wouldn't it be neat if we could do that for each other? Wouldn't it be neat if you could even forgive yourself and forget your sins that you've sinned in the past and never mention them to yourself again? Now, there would be a big accomplishment just in itself. We have trouble being, uh, forgiving someone else. Maybe our biggest trouble is forgiving ourselves. And that impedes our growth because we've got this great trailer of sins that we simply will not trust God to have forgiven. We don't have enough faith to believe that God has forgiven our sins. And therefore we mumble and mutter and carry on and, and we use it as an excuse not to grow or I've been so bad, or I'm so bad. And it won't let us grow because we're still worried about our past. And we like to have these pity parties and feel sorry for ourselves over our past. You know what? You can't undo it. You can't relive it. You can't fix it. It's there. It's on the record. It's happened. Forget about it. Move on. And don't do it the way the mafia does. You know, they'll come in and say, forget about it, and smile at you, and then nod at the other guy to shoot you as you walk out. No, when Christ says forget about it, he means forget about it. Now, some of you are rebelling even as I say that. You don't want to forget about it. You have wallowed in that past of yours, in your sins, and your mistakes, for so long that it's a comfortable wallow. But a wallow is something sheep don't use. Hogs use wallers. They wallow in mud. The sheep don't. They like to lie down in nice pastures. Now, maybe I'm, I haven't herded a lot of sheep. I've had a few sheep that... Some of you who've herded sheep, do sheep wallow? I've never, I've never heard the term sheep wallow. <laughs> Buffalo, pigs. Now, what are we? Are we sheep or are we pigs? God says that the sow is to leave her wallow and the dog is vomit and not return to it. But when God forgives us, he forgives us. Are we bigger than God? Do we think that that sin should be retained when he says it is forgiven under the blood of Jesus Christ? Now here's your chance to govern yourself. To say, self, you're not going to have self-pity anymore. You're not going to worry about your past anymore. You're going to be concerned about your future. If we could do it with ourselves, then maybe if God sends us leaders who are less than perfect, we can handle them too. Now, Paul wasn't trying to get them to take this man back who was still in his sin. He's the one who had told them, get that man and that sinner out of there. But then when there was true repentance from the heart, Paul said, you better love him and take him back. We don't want to lose this one. And, and he had to fight them over that even. And he even said that if you don't forgive him and take him back with love, Satan's getting hold of you, and you shouldn't be ignorant of his advices in verse 11. Protestantism would have you believe that Christianity is easy. It's not easy at all. I think we know that. 
But these, these are acid tests, see. Are we really willing to forgive each other, or is it just something you spout out? Oh, we've got to be forgiving. We've got to be loving. We've got to be kind. Yeah, if it's just so much sand in the air, it doesn't mean a thing. What it really means is if you have an attitude towards somebody because of something they did to you in the past or in the future or in the present or you think they're about to do you in the future, that you go down and you get on your knees and you cry out to God for that person and forgive them in your heart because he says if you don't forgive them, he simply will not forgive you. In so many words he says that. I had a situation in the churches, oh, back in the 70s, where I had a deacon and an elder. And they couldn't see things eye to eye. And their families fought, and it wasn't a real big congregation, no bigger than this one. They fought and fought and warred and back and forth, and the rest of the brethren would sit there like this, uh, wondering who was the maddest about what at the moment. They, could, they were just like oil and water. Could not get along, you stir them, and they'd separate again anyway. What am I going to do? It was, it was hard on the congregation because there was only one local elder and there was one or, or, I guess there were two deacons at that time, as I recall. But I finally, I had a, a van and I said, uh, I'd like for you to meet me and, and uh, we'll sit here and talk. So we got out where nobody could hear us. I didn't know how loud this would get. And, I, you know, who brought guns and who didn't. <laughs> but I sat him down in that van and I said, all right, we got a fight going on here, and this isn't God's way. And this fight's been going on for years and years and years. And you can't seem to settle it. I said, do either one of you have a solution to this problem? I mean, you're sitting here eyeball to eyeball. How are you going to solve this so you can get along in peace? Well, I said, I don't know. I said, well, do you have an answer? I don't have an answer. There's no answer to this one, in other words. I said, well, I don't have a way of making you get along in peace, but I do have a way of not having it affect the congregation so much. Do you want my solution? Well, I said, well, do you have a solution? No, we still don't have a solution. All right, then, let's use my solution. You're not an elder anymore, and you're not a deacon anymore. Oh, well, uh, you know, we don't like that. Well, I know you don't like that, but you don't quit fighting. And I can't have a deacon and elder fighting here. So we'll just remove the offices. Now you go out there and see if you can get along and overcome this, and then you can be deacon and elder again. But I don't want you there as an example to the people when you can't get along. I mean, to me, that sounded like a pretty logical thing to do. To them, it sounded like terrible. We're being demoted. They had already demoted themselves. They weren't leaders of the congregation. If they were leading, they would have been leading into riots. And I waited a certain time, and then I goofed. I let them back in office. <laughs> I made a mistake. I should have left them out another six months or 40 years. I don't think they ever learned to get along. But they shouldn't have been leaders. They couldn't figure this thing out. So there comes a time, see, where you have to have 
hierarchy in some degree or another so that you have someone who can say, you know, this isn't working, let's do something different here. But they weren't about to forgive each other. Now, is that Christian? They could come to church and they could laugh and they could joke with each other and drink coffee and tell stories, give sermonettes, but they couldn't be Christian to each other. I said, if, you, if we can't be Christians on the, the basic level, you know, what are we doing here? That's what this is all about. This, it isn't just so many words. Do, do we come to church, brethren, to services, to hear things, and then go home and not do anything about it? That isn't the purpose. The purpose is to come here, hear the words of God, and when Christ says, I'm not going to forgive you if you don't forgive each other, we have to believe that because it's God-breathed. It's purified seven times. It's absolute truth. There's no way you can sneak past him and say, well, you know, I know I'm still fighting with so-and-so, but I want to be in your kingdom anyway. Please forgive me. He'll say no. No. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And you can sit in services from now on, but unless we start living in it, it doesn't mean a thing. We were sitting in worldwide not really living it. And God blew us apart. So we're not here just to keep the Feast of Tabernacles happy, happy, smiley faces like we have for the last 20, 30, 40 years. If we're not here to make some changes, we're wasting our time. It's nice and the food's fairly good. And and uh, the rooms are dry, but it doesn't mean anything unless we're here to alter our lives and to think like God thinks. We can find all, we, I mean, we can find our little path through here and our particular scriptures, but we have to take them all into account. Sometimes there needs to be power and authority. Sometimes there needs to be nothing but encouragement and helpers of joy. But really, the overall purpose is to be helpers of the joy to get us to the kingdom of God. And I, don't, I, for one, don't want to sit here and let you get through this feast without altering your thinking and your activities. And I don't intend to let me get through it without altering some things. But it can slip by very quickly, can't it? And not that we're suddenly going to get this tall and that wide. We might get that wide, but maybe not that tall on a spiritual level in eight days. But if we can begin to make some changes, then we can carry through when we go home. And we can make sure that we continue in that path. Well, let's see. Before I got off on that, where was I headed? Uh, we were in uh, Corinthians and then Ephesians 4 about the offices that were given. You see, we tend in America to look at offices and authority with a jaundiced eye. We've been taught that we're free and we're independent and you can't tell me what to do. That's been ingrained in us since we were old enough to hear. I'll do what I want to do. And so we have an automatic resistance to someone telling us. We don't like to be told what and how and when and where and who. 
It's not just our American culture. That's just the way human nature is and always has been. So we resist. But God tells us to become humble and meek and not resist his word and not resist those whom he sends to speak to us. We could take the attitude, well, so-and-so, he's not even ordained, he's just given a sermonette. doesn't make a bit of difference. If he's speaking the truth of God here, it's just as important if, as if uh, an ordained man or Jesus Christ, or an apostle or Christ himself were saying it. If it's his words, then we should be meek enough and humble enough to say, it doesn't matter. No. Peter was an unlearned man. He was not highly educated. Paul was highly educated. Frustrated Peter at times that he couldn't understand what that educated fellow was saying. But Paul listened to Peter at times because Peter was speaking the words of God. So it didn't matter what the levels of education, the levels of intelligence. It was simply a matter of is this the truth of God or not. So then it doesn't matter. If it's the truth of God, we should be humble enough and meek enough to accept it from anybody God sends to give it to us. All right, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> Second Corinthians six. Well, we're already we're already past that. Let's just skip on here a little bit. Chapter. Well, now let's go on back. Second Corinthians six. Uh, verse 4, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. He went through a great deal to be able to get around to and serve those people. He gave of himself. He was a servant. He was not there as an overlord. He was willing to go through all these things for us. I wonder if we're willing to go through these things for the people in the millennium. Remember, this is our training ground. There are beatings ahead of us. There is jail time ahead of us. There is martyrdom ahead of us. They're going to kill some of us, thinking they do God a service. We may be as individuals called on to the exact same things for the people in the millennium that Paul was doing for his congregations. Now, there is government on the best level. Let those who be great among you be your servants. Be willing to go through anything for each other. And we may have to go through an awful lot before God turns us loose as kings and priests in the world tomorrow to teach those people how to live. We will have been there. We will have suffered to some degree, maybe personally, or seeing some of our loved ones and friends die in the next few years, drawn and quartered, sawed in half, electrocuted, whatever they decide to do to some of God's people is going to happen. And we're going to have to experience that. Otherwise, we will not know what people have been through in the end of this age. But if we're to have compassion on them and to love them and to understand what they have just gone through and what they need, then we will have gone through it too. Not all of us are going to be martyred and killed. Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things. But it does say there that in Matthew 24 they will kill some of us. 
You ready to be a minister? You ready to be a servant of God's people, whether you're ordained or not? Because it isn't just going to only be ordained men that they're going to kill. It's going to be... I would be surprised if it wasn't somebody in this room that will be martyred. Maybe somebody's. I mean, just... You take the numbers, I'm just talking about the mathematics of it, the percentages of it. There's likely somebody sitting here today who will wind up being martyred. And that's the price we pay to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow, ruling over God's people with love and concern. So Paul might have been powerful at times and said, you put that man out or you forgive that man. But he was also willing to go through stripes and imprisonment, beatings, tumults, floating around in the Mediterranean on a log with nothing, snake bite, perils of robbers, perils of seas for those people. And that's what he's calling on us to do. There is leadership by example. I'll do anything for you. I'll go through anything. I'll die for you. Isn't that the example Jesus Christ set? I'll die for you. Maybe for some men, some would choose to die, but for most, we would like to protect our own hide. That is our natural reaction. Who is there here you would die for? Who do you love that much right here that you would die for them? A mate? A child? How about the sweaty Hulk next on your right that you don't particularly care for in the first place? Where's the test? Where does the test end? If we are to be a part of the government of God, we've got to be willing to do as Christ did. And Paul wound up having to give his physical life, martyred, as did most of the other apostles except John. So boy, did they set an example for us. Let me make a contrast here. Let's take Worldwide Church of God 20, 25 years ago. How many ministers do you think in the Worldwide Church of God would have gone through what Paul went through here for his congregation? Maybe you can think of somebody. <laughs> I don't think we were prepared for that. I don't think we were ready for that. We were too busy as a ministry, as a whole, as a church, building big buildings and big houses and big cars and new cars and, and uh, feeding our own bellies. How many true servants were there? I believe there were some true servants, and I'm not saying that, you know, faithful and little, faithful and much. And those who were there and who were being faithful and little and truly were serving might have been in this category, and they might have been willing to do the big things too that Paul went through. So I don't mean to put everybody down but I have to question whether I was ready for that. I have to question whether I'm still ready for this, what he did. But I hope I'm recovering. And I hope you're recovering. And I hope that we can understand that when Christ said, I will lead you and hold you gently as lambs, that's the kind of government he wants. And he wants you to be tender with yourself in that sense, too, and forget your past mistakes and sins, as we already covered, and come to him and say, here I am, 
Maybe I wasn't what I should have been, but I'm not going to be that way anymore. I'm moving forward and up the steps here. I want to think like you and act like you. If, if he's willing to forgive our sins and willing to forget our sins, then we need to be willing to forgive ours and others' sins. That is his example of government, and that's an example here that Paul uses as well. Uh, chapter 11, verse 8. Some say the ministry today does not have the right or the authority to take up, uh, to take out the tithes of the people. What did he say? Verse 8, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. Not only did he take up the tithes when he needed to, he took them from one congregation and used them for the benefit of another congregation. You can say, well, that's my money. You can't take it to Philippi. You've got to use it right here in Colossae. He'd say, no, they need it in Philippi. I'm sending it to Philippi. See, it's not my money anymore. It's not your money anymore. Once we turn it over to God, it's for him to use wherever he sees fit, and hopefully those that are working in the ministry will use it properly. We've seen abuses of that. People try to say, well, there should be no tithing. Well, uh, Paul did. Now, there were times with a brand-new congregation where he didn't lay that on them right away. He didn't say, suddenly come into a Gentile church and say, all right, boys and girls, we're going to do everything that the Old Testament says, and we're starting right now. That would have just blown them away. So he gave them a little at a time. So we'll start out without not committing fornication and strangling things. If you, you know, if you can handle that this week, then we'll talk about something next week. So he didn't just drop the whole Marianne on them. It was a matter of using wisdom and, and patience and being careful. And, uh, you know, in, in like manner, here's a group that just come together newly a few days ago, and you could have walked in the back door, and I could have stood here and said, well, let's see, I see that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong. I'm not, this is indiscriminate where this finger is going. <laughs> Please and said, uh, let's all be straightened up by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Now, how far would that go? But they try to say, well, Paul went in and he didn't require that of them, therefore he should never require it of any of us. Well, that, that's resting the scriptures because you can find plenty of other scriptures in here where Paul did take money from the people and did use it for the administration of the churches. So you've got, to, you've got to hear a little air, a little put all the scriptures together on it and understand what actually went on. New congregation, you're very careful. You give them a little at a time. We did that with new prospects. What if we'd come out, and maybe it was done a few times, but here was a new letter back in 1967. And the minister came to your door and uh, started pointing out everything in your life that was completely contrary to scripture. How good a prospect would you have become in most cases? You know, give, give me a 10-minute synopsis of your life. Oh, okay, I see. Let's see, you got a divorce, you got to quit that job, you can't carry a gun on, as a policeman. Uh, you know, you just told them everything the first visit. I, I don't think the church would have grown much. So government has to be used very, very carefully and slowly steer people 
the direction they ought to go. Point out what they need to do a little at a time because I can't overcome everything overnight. Can you? I've been working at it now most of my life. And sometimes I feel like I've hardly made any progress at all. I am capable of being just as carnal now as I was when I was 13. We won't go into any detail. But, you know, we are all human, and we all have this human mind and frame. We can't overcome everything at once, but on the other hand, you can't say there's just too much. I've quit. Just keep pecking away. That's what Paul did here. Actually, I could go on with this. Let's see, we're on the second page now. This isn't notes of things to say. This is just a list of scriptures. There is so much in there because it's all about government. That's all it's about. Now let me try to skip down. I, I don't want to spend the whole rest of the feast on this. Uh, but maybe it wouldn't be bad either. Examples where they use power, examples where they use softness and gentleness. Remember that one where it says, of some have compassion making a difference and others jerk out of the fire? See the wisdom of Solomon and the babies? How do you know when to do which? You see a person who has some difficulties and some problems and you don't know whether to jerk their chain or read them a lullaby. No. Knowing when to have compassion and make a difference for them, uh, give them room, give them space, or when to grab them by the neck and say, listen, you, that's what James says we have to do, is to make to know when to do which. But the authority is there to do one or the other. So even though self-government is the key to the whole thing, we do not govern ourselves totally properly, and therefore God has put over us other governments to help us, to strengthen us, to guide us, to lead us, to correct us at times, to help get us where it is that we want to go. We want to go there, but sometimes we resist. Maybe we should get into, let's go to 1 Thessalonians. I'll skip through some of this. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome, burdensome as the apostles of Christ. In other words, the power and the authority was there to be misused if they decided to misuse it. But that isn't what he said. It's not what they did. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. Some of you are nurses. I know of at least one nurse in the room. What if you have a bunch of little children that are sick? How do you take care of those children? 
as a drill sergeant? Well, you better get all well today or we're killing you tomorrow. Or do you pat, pat them and pamper them, take care of them and, and love them and gently speak to them and coo over them and sing to them and, and change their deities and just do everything you can to make them comfortable while they're ill? Now that's the way Paul said it ought to be done. And only if that child really gets rebellious do you have to do something different, see? So being affectionately desirous of you, the ministry should have a very close affection for the people. You were willing to have, we were willing to have imparted to you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. See, we have to develop a relationship between the ministry and the people of God that is dear that is close, that is warm, that is affectionate. Not standoffish, not we're above you, not we're better than you, but we're your dear friends, loving you, kindly affectioned to you, friendly toward you, loving. That is what God intends. That is what Paul was trying to do. Now we have a problem in that we have been misused and abused and that lifting up of one man above another in the ministry has been done, but that is not the way the relationship should be. This is all about relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with those whom God has set in offices. You know, I, I've handled animals quite a bit, and you, you don't go out with a big stick and smack sheep around to get them where you want them. Not if you do it right. And I, I've never seen it yet where you could, if you had a, a kicker for the milk cow, where you could beat her to the point she wouldn't kick anymore. My uncle had one, and my uncle was kind of a mean man, one of them. And I saw him nearly beat a cow to death day after day after day trying to get her to quit kicking. <laughs> she just got worse. She didn't know what he was trying to do. And I watched him, and then I thought, well, that must be the way you're supposed to herd cows. So I got myself a tube before, and I started beating the milk cow. You know, I learned that didn't work. She got where she just plain didn't like me. She wouldn't kick me in the shin anymore. She'd have kicked me in the head if she could have. <laughs> so I learned that wasn't the way to do it. And I learned over the years that if I was gentle with animals and friendly and kind with animals, not only wouldn't they run that from me, and neither would they kick me, but they would actually come to me. And they would want nuzzled and petted and pampered and fed. That's the way it's supposed to work. And that's what Paul is telling us here. And he said, 
Then, for you remember, brethren, verse 9, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable to any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God, your witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we be saved ourselves among you that believe. I've heard ministers actually say to people, well, you know, you only should drive so far to anoint somebody. If it's over 20 miles, you ought to send them a cloth. <laughs> now, is that a servant who's willing to float through the Mediterranean for you? You know, if one of your kids was sick, how far would you drive? How much effort would you go through? You'd probably fly clear across the country if you had a grandchild who was about to die. You'd do everything you could to help that situation. Now, that's the way we're supposed to be. And I have to apologize that we weren't enough that way. But I think some are beginning to try to be that way. And I'd appreciate your prayers if you'll help me be that way. Because we're, I, I just want to love you. <laughs> I want to hug you, and I want to be friendly with you, and I don't want us to fight and argue, and I don't want to be looked up to or down upon. I just want to be a Christian. I just want to be forgiving and loving and gentle and kind and, and all I ought to be, and not some of the things that I sometimes am. And we need to pray for one another and be kindly affectioned to one another. That's the kind of government he's after. I can give you a, a hundred more scriptures, but how many do we need? You can go read those yourself. But one like this one, this, this wasn't any of your memory scriptures, was it? This one we just read here in Second in uh, First Thessalonians? Nobody knew where this was. I mean, you've read it. I've read it. But what he's telling us something here is fundamental about government, about how it ought to operate. Let's see, 2 Thessalonians 3. Remember what that one says. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the eternal may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. So, in one letter he writes to them, we will be kindly affectioned and dear and loving. And yet, at the other, on the other hand, he says, we will command. Verse, five, or verse 6, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. It's the quarantine thing of the Old Testament, just translated to New Testament action. If you were a leper in the Old Testament, you were quarantined until you got over it. You couldn't come back in. And if somebody has a problem that's affecting others, you simply quarantine them until they get over it. I mean something that's like a moving disease that's going to affect other people. I mean, we can all have our faults and sins and problems, and we all do, our foibles, our personality quirks. We all have those things, and we can make room for each other. But if there's somebody here who says, I'm committing fornication, I'm going to continue committing fornication, will you come, come fornicate with me? This is a little bit different story. 
and those need to be put away and out of the camp until they get over it and until they repent from the heart and can come back in without influencing other people towards sin. That's what you do with a herd of animals. If you get Bang's disease or something, you simply quarantine those or take them to the slaughterhouse or somehow get them away from the others so it doesn't affect the other animals. And only when they're healthy, if they ever get healthy again, are they allowed back. That's all God is saying here. It's not that we're putting somebody out of the church forever and ever and ever or that they're the worst thing that ever happened just because they're not there. They just got a problem that's a problem. And until it is solved. But that doesn't mean we don't love them as brothers and hope they get over it. So authority is only to be used in that way to protect us from ourselves and each other when something is infectious. You know, if somebody comes and tells everybody of their sin, we're forced, I'm forced to do something about it. But if somebody has a private sin and they come to me personally about it, you know, I have the latitude then to work with that person as long as it's influencing other people to do what he's doing. I can work with somebody with a private personal sin a whole lot longer than if it becomes a public sin. Once it's public, you've got to deal with it. As long as it's private, boy, God gives us, how much patience does he give you and me? Some of us have been in the church a long, long time. Some have still got sins that we had 20, 30 years ago, haven't overcome yet. And God hasn't smashed us. There are times when he makes a dramatic scene, like Ananias and Sapphira, and God took the government. God didn't even leave it to the apostles in that case. When he was trying to make a point, and the people were all trying to get together and do what needed to be done for the survival of all, and Ananias and Sapphira got selfish, God didn't even tell Peter or Paul, put that person out. God struck them dead. Because that would have ruined what that church was trying to accomplish at that time. So there are times when God says, human government isn't even strong enough. I will take this into my hands. And yet he is the most gentle, loving person, being that, that there is. How often does he come down on the church? Not very often. Now, he's come down on us lately, and he came down hard. He didn't come down on the early New Testament church very often. But with Ananias and Sapphira, he came down hard. And ultimately, he did the same thing pretty much to the early New Testament church that he's done to this current church. He allowed wolves and apostates to come in, and that church basically fell apart and disappeared within about 60 years of its inception. The same things happened here. We're no better than those people were. We can look at those Corinthians and all those folks back there and say, boy, did they have problems. <laughs> yeah, they did. So do we. So let's work together to accomplish what God wants and be kindly affectioned one to another. Because that's, a, you know, I mean, we have the first level of government, that's me ruling me. And then we have the second level of government, and that is us cooperating with, helping one another, exhorting one another, strengthening one another. And then you have the third level of government, and that is the ministry that God has set to be sure things are done decently in order. 
And only when things get out of hand do they have to get authoritative and powerful. It's not that you rule everybody and try to control their lives and make sure they do everything exactly right, like got to be the custom. But he who is ruled least is ruled best. What is the whole idea of child-rearing? I'll close with this one. You have this little baby there, and it's born in rebellion. I was warm, now I'm cold. I was comfortable, now I'm miserable. And what are you rubbing me with that for? And why did you smack my behind to get me to breathe if I needed it? You know, he, he, his attitude is just, he comes into the world with just really a bad attitude. And it improves shortly. <laughs> but, it, but then it's up and down from then on. But what is the goal and the purpose of childbirth? It is take this little child that you have to hold so carefully and hold its little head up so it doesn't plop back and break its neck. You, you have to do everything for it. And slowly, it gets to the point it can do a little more from itself. And here is the imagery I have of child rearing. As I have my hands around it as carefully as I can, and slowly, over a period of years, I turn it loose more and more. I still got my hands here when it's two or three, and you know, and it's trying to walk. But I don't want it to break its nose or chip its new little teeth. But the idea is to give it room to walk. And then there's, as it gets older and older, I should be able to move my hands further back. And eventually, that child should be able to stand and live and walk on its own. That's what God's doing with us. He takes us as little babes when we first come into the church and know hardly anything. And slowly, we're supposed to gain control of ourselves until we become a full, mature Christian who can stand on his own. So government should only be there to help us and hold us as we grow and to be sure that we can stand. And that government should be less and less and less. You should need less and less. That's why Paul got so frustrated when he said, you should be teachers. And here I'm having to start all over with the very basic things with you. From a teacher's standpoint, you want to pull your hair out. Nehemiah, I could get out of that mode. I made the bald. But you get ready to pull your hair out when people don't seem to, to learn. And Paul must have thought, I went through all this. And they haven't learned a thing. There must have been great frustration in writing that. Because the, the, the thing wasn't working right. He wasn't being able to turn them loose and then be ready to teach. But that's the whole goal of child rearing. Now, some people have this view of that little thing is rebellious and it's just like I am or used to be. And I have got to keep control of it. And when it's 40 years old, I'll still have control of it. You know, they won't turn loose. They won't let that child live and breathe. And other people say, yeah, whatever the brat wants to do. You know, he's, he's three years old now. Let him go. <laughs> no, no, there's the balance in there, see. And the same with church government. It's only give as much control as is necessary to let that person grow and flourish and breathe and become what that person ought to be. So we're out of time. Oh, we're over time again. So I'll quit there and uh, see you tomorrow or in a little while. <laughs>